Hello, this is Daniel Vincent from the Particular Baptist Podcast. In today's episode, I present to our church, Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia, on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Since we were not able to meet in person, this presentation is done over Zoom. I hope you're edified by this lesson. Good morning, everyone. This morning, we'll be talking about doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, but before we actually get into the doctrine, I want to give um, kind of a historical, brief historical background on the doctrine, especially as it relates to the Reformation. Um, so the doctrine of justification by faith alone has really been considered the focal point of Protestant theology, even during the Reformation. Um, we start to see this with Luther coming onto the scene. Um, you know, Luther is known for his views on indulgences, the preeminence of the scriptures, propagating the doctrine of sola scriptura and his emphasis on faith alone as being the means of salvation. And Luther's journey really began with the 95 Thesis, and this set off that firestorm in Europe that would start to peel back the, the layers of the Catholic Church and allowing um, scholars, Christian scholars, to see the teachings of the Church for what they really are. So this would lead to the discovery of the biblical teaching of justification by faith alone. Um, and there was a real pushback, or a real push, I should say, to go back to the early church fathers and particularly the Greek language. And I'm going to pull some from Nick Needham's book on uh, 2000 years of Christ's power, which we went through last year. Um, but he notes, quote, the Christian humanists did not admire only pagan writers of the classical age. They wanted to go back to all the sources of Western European civilization, Christian as well as pagan. So they dug afresh into the riches of the Greek New Testament and the early church fathers, end quote. So there, there is this pushback to, or this push to start questioning the church at the time. Was the, were the teachings of the Catholic church really in line with what was taught originally by the early church? And how do we apply those teachings now uh, into the present theological situation. And so we see this with the printing of Erasmus's Novum Instrumentum in 1516, which was the first published Greek New Testament. Um, this calling back to the original sources um, that really underlined the Latin Vulgate, which was the standard Bible at the time. But this back to the sources frame of thinking is what led Luther to really begin thinking about this doctrine of justification by faith alone. You had Luther's friend, Philip Melanchthon, who was an expert in the Greek language and professor of Greek at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. He really helped Luther start to develop this doctrine of justification. So we can see that Luther was accompanied by other scholars around him. He was surrounded by those who were passionate for the truth of scripture and not just taking the Catholic Church's word for it as it relates to um, these critical doctrines. And what Melanchthon did was he brought Luther to an understanding of justification by looking at the Greek language itself. So Needham notes again, quote, Melanchthon's study of New Testament Greek convinced him that what the New Testament means to justify, the Greek word dikeo, is declare righteous in a legal sense. The understanding of justification in the Western medieval church relied on the standard Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate, which rendered apostle, the Apostle Paul's key term Dikaio by the Latin ustivacars, meaning to make righteous in the sense of moral transformation, the process by which a sinner is changed spiritually in his soul into a just, holy, godly person. 
end quote. So in other words, a, a bad Bible translation led to poor theology in this time. It led the Catholic Church to teaching what is called um, the, in, the doctrine of infusion of righteousness of the person, which means that they are actually made holy. They are actually transformed and made righteous, not in a legal sense as the reformers saw it, but actually being transformed as righteous. And this completely changes the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The entire meaning of justification changes. And so Luther started to see that the doctrine of justification is really based on a, a forensic view rather than an a transformation in the person's moral status before God. And uh, he started to see this as a real issue in the Catholic Church. But this doctrine of justification that we'll be talking about is a gospel issue. It's not something that is, is a second tier issue, you know, whether uh, someone's view on, like we would say with someone's view on end times, um, we would say that would be a, a second tier issue that does not uh, determine whether you are an Orthodox Christian or not. Um, but we're talking about an issue that goes to the core of our faith, the doctrine of justification, how we are saved and made right before God. It's a very important issue. Um, and Pastor Steve already uh, quoted this earlier, but Luther said that justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. He saw this as crucial to the church's doctrine and at the heart of the gospel. And so I want that to be in the forefront of our minds as we go through this doctrine today, that this doctrine really determines where we are in our standing before God. If we get it wrong, if we, if we get the doctrine wrong at its core, um, it can lead to serious spiritual consequences. Um, and so that's why I want to take the time to go through this in detail today. Um, but it is truly the centerpiece of our faith. It, it not only affects how we are saved, but it affects the atonement of Christ and what that means and the role that plays in our salvation. Um, so we have to be very careful. Now, the Catholic Church um, in the Council of Trent in 1545 tried to combat this doctrine of that Lutheranism was spreading. Lutheranism was spreading throughout Europe very quickly, and they wanted to address this issue of justification by faith alone. So I want to read a few of the canons that they laid out in this council um, that condemn justification. Canon 9, they say, quote, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Canon 12, quote, if anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy, pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. And finally, Canon 14, quote, if anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified, because that he assuredly believed himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified, but he who believes himself justified, that and that by this faith alone, absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. So these anathemas, you know, they keep using this word anathema. That means to damn someone. We see Paul using this language in Galatians, where he says, if anyone teaches a different gospel, they are to be, let them be a curse, let them be anathema, let them be damned. So this is literally calling a damnation on someone, saying that they are cursed to hell. They are damned to hell because of this teaching that they are perpetrating. So you can see that 
um, not only did the reformers see this as a core doctrine, but the Catholic Church saw this as uh, such a crucial doctrine to be avoided that it that to teach it and to believe it would damn you to hell. Um, so we we need to remember that as we go through this today. Um, so now let's turn to our confession. If you have your confession with you, turn to chapter 11. We're in chapter 11, and we're going to go through each paragraph. Um, we're going to there, there's six paragraphs. We're going to read through them and give a high level overview of justification. Um, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll be diving into the questions in more detail as it relates to Waldron's book. But Waldron lays out in his appendix B of the book, which is on page 503, um, the different parts of this confession. And Pastor Steve laid this out last week when he talked about um, effectual calling, that our confession is laid out very systematically. So currently we're, we're in part two, which is God's covenant that covers chapter seven through 20 of the confession. And justification has to do with God's covenant in more than one way. Number one, it lays out how we enter the new covenant. And number two, it has to do with who the members of the new covenant are. So there are conditions by which you must become a member of that covenant. And that's touched upon in this chapter. So all of this, the doctrine of salvation, adoption, effectual calling, etc., have to do with God's covenant in the way that um, is affected onto believers. So that's important to keep in mind as we go through this chapter today. But let's look at chapter 11. Paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness unto them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, nor any or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. By receiving and resting on him in his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So this is laying out a very high level overview of what justification is and how does it work in the life of a believer. Paragraph two. I have a question. Yes. Uh, it says not by imputing faith itself or the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them, but don't we get faith imputed to us in the new birth, the act no. of believing. I'm not really sure. Is it just saying that those aren't what saves us? Yes. Yeah. It, it's saying that those aren't what saves us. And um, it's really pointing back that this act of justification, including the faith that we have is not originating in us. It's a gift of God. Oh, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more detail later, but at, at a very high level, that's what um, they're talking about here. Okay, thank you. Yep. Um, but paragraph two of faith us receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all their saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. So faith is not alone, essentially calling to James chapter two. Um, there will be fruit if there is true faith. Paragraph three. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who were justified and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet in his 
much as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely, not for anything in them. Their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. So they're dealing with the forensic aspect of it, that God's law was satisfied um, through the death of Christ as it relates to our justification. Paragraph four, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. Paragraph five, God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they usually do not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon and renew their faith and repentance. And finally, paragraph six, justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all respects one and same with the justification um, of believers under the Old Testament. And we'll talk more about that specifically next week. But that hey, is, yes, Pastor Steve. Yeah, Daniel, uh, there's a family uh, that's saying they're trying to get in and they, ah, yes. All right, you found Got it. it. Okay, yep. good, good. Thank All you. right, thank you. Yep. So today, when we talk about justification, um, I want to focus on the doctrine as it's found in the book of Romans. Pastor Steve read from Romans 4 this morning. As I, I think that the book of Romans lays out the most explicit commentary in the scriptures on this doctrine. So this lesson is probably going to sound more like a sermon than it is a equipping our lesson. But if we're going to um, harvest this doctrine from the scriptures, we have to exegete the text. Um, so with that, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So in verse 15, right before this passage, Paul has already laid out that he wants to preach the gospel to the church at Rome, which he already began to expound upon in verses 1 through 6. And then in verse 16, he starts to lay out what the gospel really is. And Paul is eager to get this gospel to those in Rome and remind them of the power of the gospel and its content. He's not ashamed of this gospel that has been given to him. The death of Christ is foolishness to the world, um, to Greeks, and even to the Jews who had the oracles of God given to them. Um, but Paul was not ashamed of this message that was foolishness to the world. And this message includes the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that includes, uh, since it includes justification, that is the power that God brings to his people to uh, bring about salvation. It is a mono, monogistic work, monergistic work. And Pastor Steve brought this out last week, the difference between monergism and synergism. Monergism being that, it's a solo work, right? Mono being one, it's one work. In this case, applied to salvation, it is the work of God alone in bringing us to Christ. It is not something that we cooperate with God on in the sense that we are bringing something to the table by which God gives us salvation. It is a monergistic work. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. God is the mover here 
with regards to salvation. And we see this again all the way back in chapter three, where Jesus is, chapter three of John, I should say, where Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. This is a work of God regenerating and bringing salvation to his people. Though we as fallen human beings, though, tend to look at other things for the power of God. And justification uh, destroys any confidence that we may have in uh, anything else other than God. Now, in back, going back to the Reformation times, this one of the ways that people would look to uh, the power of God would be through relics, not only through the sacraments in the church, but through relics. They thought that there was some kind of um, salvific power or supernatural power in these um, in these relics. And Luther went on to criticize, uh, he said, he talked, I think it was in a sermon, he said, quote, there sits that decoy duck in Rome with his bag of tricks, luring to himself the whole world with its money and goods, and all the while anyone can go to, to baptism, the sacrament, and the preaching desk. But the people say, what baptism? What, the Lord's Supper, God's Word, Joseph's britches, that's what does it. So Luther's point here is that people were looking for God's power in other things instead of looking for the means to the means that he's given to bring about uh, salvation and minister to his people. So in this case, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation and justification is part of that gospel that he will lay out here in verse 17. And we see this, that justification is part of the gospel because he says that the righteousness of God is revealed. And he, then he says how it's revealed in verse 17. It's revealed from faith to faith. And what this means is that faith is the means by which that righteousness comes to us. So this is an introduction of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And this, what is this righteousness that he is uh, talking about here? This is the righteousness that is imputed to our account. It's the, an alien righteousness, as we would say. It's not one that comes from us or that originates in us. It's the righteousness of another, and it's revealed through faith. It comes to us through faith and faith alone. So Paul is identifying this doctrine of justification by faith alone with the gospel. This is part of the content of the gospel. So it's crucial that we get this doctrine right. So then Paul moves on, starting in uh, later on in chapter 1, to lay out the gospel itself. He lays the groundwork of bringing the good news, uh, which would be Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, as well as justification, but he has to lay out the bad news first. We can't understand justification properly if we don't understand why we need it in the first place. Um, it's for the, remember, justification is for those who have broken the law of God and stand condemned before him. So if you turn over to verse 18 of chapter 1, most of us are familiar with this passage, but Paul begins to lay out um, the universal sinfulness of man, universal sinfulness of man. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, 
God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is laying out the pitiful state of man before God. He loves his sin. He walks in his sin. Um, and God is displeased with it. So he's laying out the problem of why man needs to be justified first. He's laying out that our, we are given over to our sin. If sometimes God gives men over to their sin, we would call, this is what theologians would call judicial hardening. God lets them go on further and further into their sin, um, and less and less light is given to them. Um, and so this, this really starts to lay out our state before God from a judicial standpoint, that we are guilty before the tribunal of God. But then we move on to chapter three. We jump ahead. You know, Paul lays out, the Jew, uh, lays out to the Jews their hypocrisy as it relates to the law in chapter two. But then he makes very clear that both Jews and Greeks are both condemned under the law, under sin. So we look at chapter three, verses nine through 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So Paul goes right to the heart of the problem with man. Men are depraved so much that we are not able to do that which is genuinely good in the sight of God. We, we might do so in an outward sense. We might outwardly conform to the laws of God. But as it truly relates to God's standard, we have really not done that which is good. And actually, we cannot. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul will say in Romans 8, 1 through 11, that those who are in the flesh, i.e. those who are not Christians, those who lack the spirit of God, they are not able to do that which is good. They cannot keep God's law. It's impossible for them to do so. So this, this helpless state that Paul sets us in leads us to the conclusion that the righteousness that we need and even the faith that we exercise must come from God and not from ourselves. And our confession talks about this sinful state. Uh, jumping ahead to chapter 16, paragraph 7, it says, works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith or are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So we have man as truly hopeless, and I, you know, we should praise God that Paul did not leave it there with regards to our, our state before him. God uh, has provided a way, and this is where we Paul starts to move into the doctrine of justification, 
by faith alone. He's already laid out in chapters one, two, and three, our pitiful state before God. We are uh, completely helpless without a mover outside of us because we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to do that which is good and satisfy the requirements that God has in his law. So in chapter three, we look at chapter three, verses 21 through 31. Turn there, if you will. Chapter three, Romans three, verses 21 through 31. But now, and this is right after Paul has laid out our sinful condition that we are not able to good uh, to do good, he starts contrasting it. He says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul starts laying out what the conditions are for salvation. We do not have the ability to save ourselves. We do not have the ability to do that which is right in the eyes of God. But there is a way that we can be made right before God, and that is through faith, and specifically faith in Jesus Christ. And again, this is that monergistic work that is being laid out here. God is the one who is moving. God is the one who is bringing us to salvation. There is nothing in this passage that would lead us to believe that anything we do of our own works, of our own merits, contributes to our salvation. And that's why it is said, Paul says, that this righteousness is revealed apart from the law. It's not a righteousness that can come to us through keeping the law itself, because we are not able to keep the law. And so what is the point of justification then? It's to satisfy God's justice, because remember, we are not able to even see God in our sinful state and live as was revealed to Moses in Exodus 33, 20. Remember Moses requested to, to see God and God said, no, you, no man can see me and live. And this is because God is so far removed from sin. He can't even look upon evil. He is holy and we are not. Um, so he is so far removed from sin that uh, it would kill us to be in his immediate presence. We see this picture also in Isaiah chapter six where we see, uh, really, this was Christ, high and lifted up. His, the train of his robe filled the temple. There was this glory that was there. And immediately Isaiah knew that he was not supposed to be in this presence because of his sinful state. And atonement had to be made. Symbolically speaking, the coal was touched to his lips, right? The coal was touched to his lips, and his sins were atoned for. So this, this idea of God dealing with sin in order for us to be in his presence is absolutely necessary um, for God to be just. But God requires perfection of every man, woman, and child. You see this in Leviticus 19.2, 
Leviticus 27, Matthew 5:48, to name a few. And we are not able to meet that requirement as we've seen very clearly in early on in chapter three of Romans. We've fallen short of the glory of God, uh, the glory of God. We've missed the mark. We've missed God, the mark of keeping God's law perfectly. And God being holy and just must punish sin. He can't let sin go unpunished. Otherwise, he isn't a really a just and holy God. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug and, and give us a break because of uh, maybe some other works that he did or maybe he's feeling sorry for us. He can't do that. He would have to stop being who he is. You have to deny his own nature to do that. And so what Paul is laying out here is that God satisfied his justice through Christ. That's what this propitiation language is being spoken about here. The wrath of God was placed upon Jesus Christ in order to satisfy that wrath um, in our place. That's what propitiation means, that wrath-bearing sacrifice or the mercy seat. If you remember in the Old Covenant, um, the sins of the people were placed upon a, a slaughtered animal on the Day of Atonement. They were placed upon the sin of that animal, and the people's sins were atoned for, and God's wrath was abated for a time, although it couldn't satisfy God's wrath permanently. We see this in Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. It could only abate God's wrath temporarily. But that's where Christ came in, and he was sacrificed, as Hebrews says, once for all for his people. He sacrificed once for all, paying the wrath and the punishment that our sins deserved. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he lifts up this idea of propitiation. Christ is our wrath-bearing sacrifice. And what this does is it allows God to look at us in a different way. He sees us as being justified, as being made right in his sight, or um, in legal terms, not guilty. So when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, his act of obedience, that would be his obedience through um, to God's law through his life from when, um, from when he was little to when he died, obeying God's law perfectly, not, um, not compromising in any way in God's law. This is the act of obedience of Christ that is talked about in our confession here, chapter 11. And then you have the passive obedience of Christ, which is that propitiation sacrifice, his death on the cross for us. And when we believe in Christ and we embrace those things, both of those things are imputed to our account. The act of obedience of Christ is imputed to our account as if we never sinned. That doesn't mean we haven't sinned. It doesn't mean, again, that we are infused with righteousness, but our legal standing changes before God. We are no longer guilty, and that righteousness is placed upon us, and, and God the Father sees that, and he accepts us because of what Jesus did. And that passive obedience satisfies the demands of the law in the sense that um, the punishment has been paid for. So a truly vicarious sacrifice can be made and we can truly um, avoid the penalty of sin through the works of what Jesus did. And this, this wonderful doctrine is our hope and our rest. We must rest in it completely for our salvation or we will be damned. If we think in any way that we can contribute our works or that there is some sliver of righteousness within us, that we, can, um, that we can bring to the table in terms of God's law or that faith is something that we can conjure up in ourselves, um, that is dangerous thinking. We must rest in Christ alone for our salvation, 
and bring nothing. We just bring the empty hands of faith and uh, we are imputed as righteous and are saved. That is our only hope. And that is uh, really the doctrine of justification. Um, and we see this doctrine laid out. Paul discusses this in other places. Galatians talks about it, I believe, in Philippians. He talks about it as well in more detail. Um, but Romans is really where he's laying out this doctrine systematically throughout um, really the course of chapters, uh, really one through eight. He starts to, he lays out this doctrine um, and its implications. Um, and before we close today, I do want to I do want to address one uh, one thing as it relates to justification. Um, it's an interesting question that uh, comes up when you consider this commentary um, on faith. So if if faith is not a work that contributes to my salvation, then can it really be considered a good work? Can we say that faith is something good that we are doing? And I would say, absolutely, yes, we can. Uh, biblically speaking, everything we do is classified as good or evil. There is no act that we do that is not under one of these two classifications. We see this in Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It says, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So every act that we do is classified as either good or evil. There's nothing um, that is left out of that. Um, there are those that do seem to think um, in the evangelical world that faith is not a good work, um, and that is a false view of faith. Um, the Bible does not say that God believes God, and it's counted to us at righteousness. It said that Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. There was a, a faith that was enacted, an act that was done by the individual in believing in God, and then that righteousness was accredited to us. So that would be, that would be ridiculous um, to say that faith is not a good work. There's a distinction made between the work of God and the work of man. Uh, but I do want to be careful that I say that faith is a work. I'm not saying that faith contributes to our salvation. It does not. Um, it is a monergistic work of God. But we do do something. We do believe. We do act. We do um, exhibit a response towards God. Um, but because that faith does not originate in us, it's not of our own righteousness, we're not trying to conjure it up in order to bring ourselves to uh, salvation, we, it cannot be properly said that faith contributes to our salvation. Our faith is counted as righteousness based on the work of another and is not attributed to us. And this goes back to Jennifer's question earlier um, about what our confession says about faith being imputed in and of itself. Um, and going back to paragraph one, it says, not imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. The righteousness comes from outside of us. It does not come from within. So if faith is something that is not of us, if faith is something that originates outside of us, it cannot be imputed to us as, um, as us actually doing it, or it would be counted as a good work contributing to salvation. All of these things are coming from outside of us because we are not able to do that, which is truly good in the eyes of God. Um, so it's very important to understand that. Um, and Romans 4, 1 through 4 says, uh, What shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. 
So the one who is acting here in Romans 4 is someone who is trying to bring something of themselves to the table in terms of their righteousness. But to the one who believes, they are utilizing that gift that comes from outside of them. We see this in Philippians 129. It says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So faith, even the ability to believe, that faith is something that is a gift outside of ourselves. And we see this also in Ephesians 2. It talks about, you know, uh, by grace you save through faith. And this not of yourselves, that would be the whole package, right? Faith, salvation, all of this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is something that comes from outside of us. It comes from outside of us. So this doctrine here creates a problem for those who would believe that somehow we can bring our uh, salvation or, or believe of our own volition, that God's work is not involved in faith. Um, and then you have to ask people like this to is faith a good work? If it is a good work and your position is true that I can believe something without God's assistance, that it is of me, of my own free will, of my own volition, um, then I must be able to do something good without God. And contradicting clear passage of scripture, Romans 8, 1 through 11, as we mentioned earlier, and up in Romans chapter 3. And uh, if we use the logic that Paul brings out in the book of, in uh, chapter 4, God would owe me something because I would be working. I would be contributing something to my salvation, and there would be something owed to me that God would be obligated to give. And so this is why it is based on a faith that comes from outside of us, because it points back to God being the one working here. We have to be very careful that we, we make these distinctions, and they may seem like fine distinctions or may not seem very relevant, um, but they have serious implications if we get them wrong. Um, and so this morning, I just wanted to lay out a very kind of a high-level overview of what justification is. And next week, we will uh, dive more into the questions from Waldron's book, getting into some of the implications that he brings out. Um, but before we close this morning, are there any questions or comments? All right. Pastor Steve, I'll hand it over to you. All right. Very good, Dan. Very good lesson.